Welcome to the Policy and Planner English Podcast, Payment Reform Edition. I'm Helen Laban, Director of Vermont Public Policy at the Bi-State Primary Care Association, and today we're having a conversation about payment reform, what it means, why we care, and providing some context for our recent series of episodes on this topic. I'll let my guest for this conversation introduce herself. Hello, my name is Georgia Maharis, and I'm the Vice President for Policy and Strategy at Bi-State Primary Care Association. And to start off this conversation, we should talk a little bit about Bi-State's connections to payment reform, because we are not just reporting on this topic, we are also deeply involved in this topic. So, Georgia, can you go over some of the ways that we've connected with payment reform in Vermont in the past? Happy to. Thank you, Helen. Um, The earliest round with payment reform, I would say, is that Bi-State and its members, which is predominantly the federally qualified health centers in the state, along with several other organizations around Vermont, formed an ACO called Community Health Accountable Care. This ACO participated in Medicaid, Medicare, and commercial shared savings programs. More recently, several of our federally qualified health centers around the state have joined One Care Vermont and are participating in various programs from Medicaid to Medicare to commercial in that next-gen-like risk-bearing ACO model. And then coming soon uh, is the health centers are participating in various value-based payment models that are being proposed by HRSA, which is their federal regulator. And that is really focusing on quality improvement for key areas of chronic illness like diabetes and hypertension and other areas like depression and cervical cancer screening that HRSA is promoting on a more broad-based nationwide basis. And that's a lot of different programs and different ways of participating in different models, but it is most simplified. What we're talking about here with payment reform is the idea that we're going to switch from what's called a fee-for-service model, where we're paying clinicians to do stuff, uh, to what's called a value-based model, which means that we're paying them to keep people well. That's correct. The way I like to think about it is we're trying to build a really sturdy house. So. If you are building your house and you're paying fee-for-service or by the piece to each of the contractors, you're going to have rooms filled with outlets every foot. You're going to have rooms filled with sinks. You're going to have rooms filled with extra windows, which you might not want to have the perfect house, which is why you bring in a general contractor who makes sure you have enough sinks in your kitchen or bathrooms and the outlets placed along the right walls and your windows in the right places, but it's not as if you have an overabundance of any of these things. You have exactly what you need. When you shift from fee-for-service, you're shifting from this piecemeal structure to one where you're having um, exactly what is needed across the system to have something that's sustainable financially long-term. And that seems logical. That is, in fact, logical. Uh, But to get from a basic statement like that to actually looking at doing things differently on the ground, there's that opens up a whole lot of different questions. And we, and we go over them in, in, in some of these episodes we've done on payment reform, but I think it's important to remind folks why it's not as easy as saying, well, this, this would be a much more logical way of doing things. Okay, do that now. Um, we do have to get into areas of risk. Uh, this is people's health that we are dealing with here. Unlike most systems, so the housing analogy I gave, or if you think about banking or any other sectors, with healthcare, there are things that happen that are 
completely random and uncontrollable. So there needs to be a way to manage the unexpected. Um, so someone is unexpectedly diagnosed with cancer or someone um, is in a horrible accident um, in their vehicle. And so there's ways that the industry has learned to manage risk in the fee-for-service model. And what we're trying to do is figure out how to allocate that same risk because the same things could happen in this future place with an emphasis on if you can get at things early, if you can look at prevention, you can really minimize that risk and distribute it in a different way. And of course, if you're looking at prevention, so eventually a generation from now, um, we may know that we, we have done it well and provided that value on the investment, but the transition isn't happening in 30 years, it's happening right now. So how do you know that you're making effective investments in prevention? How do you know that the money that's going into this quote-unquote value-based system is in, in fact delivering the value that you're looking for from it? I think that's actually the biggest question and the biggest challenge is while we know certain things um, are of high value and frankly things that have been around for a long time like certain tobacco cessation programs for example have borne out to reduce incidence of lung cancer and other smoking related conditions um, that have really been dramatically reduced over the past 20 years. Um, we have things like that where it's kind of easy. We have other things where we're saying oh if we do this with um, a diabetes program, if there's this with this type of screening, there's a lot of fine tuning around when screening should happen, when intervention should happen. And so that's, you know, honestly, we're, we're that analogy of we're building the plane as we're flying it. We're still figuring out how to do some of these things. And there is a large sector of people saying, well, you know, we have to try something. And so we're going to try this. We're going to use the best information we have. And if further down the road, we realize there's a better way, we are nimble enough and have built our systems in a way that we can modify how we do that quality improvement initiative or how we're tracking that data or how we're aligning those dollars to pay for that service. And you did say the magic words, tracking data. So data is going to end up being a big part of this both in terms of supporting the transition to models and understanding are these transitions working and what are the costs of these transitions and how do we best implement it. But also, even, even if we weren't doing payment reform, healthcare gets into a lot of data as we look at the question of data-driven care and knowing what the best treatments are and what the best strategies are. Um, so, yes, um, and we are in a world where we have a lot of data being collected. Unfortunately, not all of it is being used as ideally as possible. And that's another challenge that we're going through as we transition from this fee-for-service to a value-based model, which is how do we have actionable data that is really helping to inform either policymaker decision-making or point-of-care delivery. And we're gonna be working on kind of refining these data over time. But ultimately, what you want is if a patient presents, you want their clinician to have the best, up, most up-to-date information to help them get the care that they need, whether it's in an emergency department, an inpatient setting, a primary care office. And so data is becoming more and more important and being able to use that data and understand that data is a critical skill as we look to the future. And I would add that as data becomes more and more important and we collect more and more of it, there's, uh, as you mentioned, the question of how do we analyze it, how do we best manage it, but there's also 
the how much of a burden is it to collect. I, as you well know, as the person who reviews my timesheets every pay period, I can't even enter the data for <laughs> how I did mileage correctly. I mean, this is a lot of information to collect in a way that matches up across all providers and all health centers and can be cross-compared. That's a, that's a lot of um, time and effort and finessing of the system to make that all work together. That's correct. And I have no, uh, nothing besides anecdotal information to this, but I feel like we've hit a tipping point where the amount of data being collected and the administrative burden is at a peak and that there's only so much more that our clinicians are really going to be able to bear. And so then we flip to how do we narrow that or what different things do we do or what do other team members do or do we have some electronic system that can help us. Um, and, you know, I think to the extent that success in payment reform is predominantly reliant on are the folks who are delivering healthcare to be successful in that, we need to alleviate that administrative burden moving forward. So this also begins to get into another point we should make, which is that payment reform is a big topic and it connects through to lots of things and raises many questions uh, as we all work towards implementation, but it's not the entirety of health reform. We're looking at just one piece of the puzzle right here um, as we discuss payment reform. That's correct. So uh, we've already alluded to quality improvement, um, which really gets down to delivery system reform and practice transformation. We've talked a little bit about what's needed on the technology data side, which gets to some of the infrastructure supports that can make all of these changes possible. And then really, to me, part of the fundamental reason for payment reform is because we are facing a significant cost burden challenge uh, in Vermont and across the country. And so if we are trying to make sure that the 20% of our economy that is currently dedicated to healthcare doesn't continue to grow to be 100% of our economy, we need to make changes. And the key way to make a change is to modify how the dollars flow to change the incentives to change behaviors. One concept that I think sometimes gets confused with the value-based payment reform work is the idea of a single payer system, or now we hear a lot about Medicare for all. And these are two related concepts. They both relate to how healthcare gets paid for, but they are not synonymous. That's correct. They do operate independently from each other. And I think one of the dynamics that we currently having in the United States is even if you look at just Medicare, there are actual multiple payers within the Medicare program, frequently called Medicare Advantage plans or Medicare Supplemental plans or other private insurers who are offering Medicare or wraparound. So we already have a tapestry of healthcare entities serving the Medicare population providing those incentives. And while they may be similar, they are sometimes different. The alignment right now is still necessary between the multitude of Medicare, Medicare Advantage payers, supplemental plans, commercial plans, Medicaid payers, and really making sure that we're able to provide the incentives directionally. And I think one of the values of payment reform is that if you can get all of the different types of payers to align, they don't have to be identical in how they're paying. They just have to have their dollars directionally going in the same way. 
Behavioral economics indicates that that will actually cause the behavioral changes in the delivery system that we want to happen to then result in better health outcomes and more value. So it's the research and the analysis that I've seen doesn't say that everything has to be exactly identical. It's just that it all has to be um, going in that same direction to cause that behavioral change. Um, I would also add that there are several entities in Vermont that are working on this problem and um, it, to various degrees. So for example, you've got the Green Mountain Care Board, which is regulating and monitoring what's happening in payment reform and in cost containment and the delivery system and making sure that as we make these shifts in dollars and in what the healthcare experience, we're doing it in a way that is fast enough to meet these goals around cost containment, but not so fast that individuals get harmed. Secondly, we have organizations like One Care Vermont serving in a capacity where they're really trying to shape how the system will look and make sure that we're getting that significant feedback and work done by all of the practices and all the clinicians around the state to make sure that we're shifting those behaviors and we're shifting those dollars in a way that really works in each community in a very targeted way. Layered on top of that, we have all of the payers, you know, you've got your commercial payers, you've got Medicaid, you've got Medicare, who have all of their own rules of the road that are trying to get their way through this, because um, at a certain point, the, the dollars and cents need to work for them. Payers bring in an important element. In Vermont, whenever we try and do reform, the first question seems to always be, so we can do it alone, right? Vermont can just be the innovators and go out in front and we don't need anyone's permission. But that's not the case here. The federal government is very much involved in what we can do for healthcare reform and in frankly funding it because the federal government picks up a lot of the healthcare tab. Uh, that's correct. Uh, you know, one of the benefits of being in Vermont is that we're small, um, so we can bring people around a table, we can have the conversations and really hash out some of these larger issues where you're really changing the way business works, the way patients interact, and the way the policymakers are looking at information and making decisions. Um, on the other hand, we do have individuals who come to Vermont from other states to get healthcare services. We have Vermonters who go outside of Vermont. So we can't just put a bubble around us and do whatever we want. And to your point about the federal government's investment in Vermont, you know, between the match that we get for Medicaid, which is about 50 cents of every dollar spent on Medicaid comes from the federal government, the Medicare benefit for all of Vermont's Medicare population, which is growing over time as our population ages, and then there's any number of different smaller um, investments that the federal government is doing either through federally qualified health center funding or various grants that they're supporting from the CDC, from SAMHSA, from HHS. So the federal government is not just funding a lot of this. They are, as they set up rules or requirements, that's going to drive everything forward in a specific direction. Um, what Vermont has done, which I think is great and, and shows Vermont's uniqueness is we have taken what the federal government offered and said, so thank you. We're going to tweak this a little bit. The federal government has agreed to do that, those tweaks with us. And then we're aligning other programs, Medicaid and commercial, to really try and create everyone going in um, on the same path as opposed to divergent paths, which could happen in somewhere where there's, you know, less collaboration or a larger population to manage. 
when we look at Vermont making reforms as compared to the rest of the country, you just cited an advantage of us being smaller is the idea that we can collaborate in different ways. And we have traditionally been very innovative, uh, taking advantage of that small size to be entrepreneurial in these different programs. On the other hand, I'm not an actuary, but I know enough about insurance risks to know that the smaller your denominator is, the more problematic it becomes. And we have a very small population compared to how it's being sliced and diced in other parts of the country. Um, yeah, and I think that's part of the the reason that we in Vermont are trying to do as much in alignment or identically as possible because we're trying to get as many Vermonters in that same denominator altogether. And if we have you know significant segments who are doing something different, that means that it's harder to achieve the goals you're trying to achieve. Um, I also think that there's a, an opportunity that other states have potentially because they do have either a different compilation of tax revenue that gives them some different flexibilities than we have in Vermont. They have different regions where they're able to try different things out. They have, you know, let's take California. There are counties in California that are larger than the entire state of Vermont's population. And so they're able to try things perhaps differently than we're able to try just because they're so much bigger and they're able to redirect resources in a different way. That said, if I'm biased, I really think what Vermont's doing is great. And I think that we're able to make changes. Um, and as long as we have willing partners in the federal government and on the private um, payer side, I think that we're able to continue some of the great reforms we've had historically. Um, but you're right, it is size does matter and it is a challenge to us. Now, we've covered a lot of the basic concepts in payment reform, both in this introduction here, but also in the episodes that we are posting along uh, with this conversation that go over the terminology, the theories behind it, the framework that we're working in, what are the tools that Vermont is using to make these changes. I, you know, For those of us who aren't in it every day and don't necessarily hear these vocab terms thrown around a lot, um, can you just highlight for us where we would expect payment reform news to be showing up, some issues that are going to be talked about, you think, in the next year? I know we cannot 100% predict the future here, but where folks might be looking for some of these ideas to come into play. Happy to. I'm actually going to start a little broader, and I think that the federal government is going to continue to issue rules and um, put forth policies that make changes to their existing payment reform structure. And so that's going to predominantly come along as Medicare is making a change or um, HHS is proposing modifications to prescription drug costs or things like that. So we'll get continue to get things on that federal level that will have impact in Vermont. Additionally, in Vermont, you're going to have the Green Mountain Care Board that's going to continue its work. So they have meetings pretty much every single week on Wednesdays and have a great website that archives all of their meeting information. In addition, when the legislature reconvenes in January, there will be a lot of legislative reports that talk about what's going on in payment reform. They get reports from One Care Vermont. They get reports from the Green Mountain Care Board. They get reports from various parts of the Agency of Human Services, including Medicaid that's working in this area, as well as general conversation to make sure that are we on the right track? Are the decisions we've made over time 
still um, pointing us directionally towards better value for our healthcare spending. Um, additionally, I think there'll be a lot of various conversations outside of kind of those more formalistic legislative or Green Mountain Care Board structures. So things should pop up in seven days or VT Digger that's talking about different aspects of these reforms. Um, finally, the part that I think is not quite a 2020 experience, but I think over time, more and more patients should start to experience this, hey, let's get ahead of this. Let's get on the prevention side. Let's really have that conversation um, about what we can stave off and prevent for you, as opposed to really focusing more on that, you know, the chronic um, medical management side, getting ahead of it. So I think the arc of time we've started and we have more and more patients who are, you know, starting in that area, but that's going to be a generational shift. But I would hope that patients start to feel those impacts sooner rather than later. So thank you, Georgia, for coming to our recording studio, which is also the conference room next to your office. But I know it was a long journey across that hallway. For listeners, I hope this was a helpful overview of the world of payment reform. We have a series of our regular short episodes lined up to explain some of the more important terms and concepts in this work that we'll include in the show notes. Or check our website, plannerenglish.org, and look for the post with the tag payment reform. There you can also find posts for upcoming series that begin to look a little deeper at some of the issues we mentioned around collecting data, evaluating performance, and the cost of paperwork. All topics we'll get into in more detail on future episodes of the Policy and Planner English podcast.